Welcome to The Compassionate Life with Dr. Brittany King. In this hour, you'll hear stories about kindness, selflessness, and of course, compassion. The hope is that you'll be inspired to create some compassionate moments of your very own. Now, here is Dr. Brittany King. Thanks for joining us this week on The Compassionate Life. I am Dr. Brittany King, and this is Voice America's Empowerment Channel. This week, we get to talk about a completely different new topic. Uh, We're talking about One Health, One Medicine and St. George's University. That's where I went to veterinary school um, and their approach to One Health, One Medicine, kind of in honor of November 3rd, which is the worldwide One Health um, Day that we celebrate. Um, We're also speaking with Dr. Diana Stone. Just a little background on her. She is a professor in the pathobiology department at SGU. She was one of my professors. We've had a long relationship of of research projects and and all kinds of things. She teaches veterinary immunology and participates in the veterinary public health course. Her research interests focus on infectious diseases and particularly zoonotic pathogens, which for our readers out there, those are uh, diseases transmitted from animals to people. Her current research projects include studies on vector-borne diseases in dogs and zoonotic viruses in bats in Grenada. Um, She was the faculty advisor for our One Health, One Medicine community outreach clinics held in Grenada. I did initiate those in 2007, and we'll talk through some of that a little bit later on. Um, But she was our very first faculty advisor. And then more recently, Dr. Stone has helped to organize an SGU-SVM, or St. George's University School of Veterinary Medicine, rabies diagnostic training course. And then uh, really doing a lot of community outreach. So to build on this experience of training Caribbean nationals, um, she applied for a grant um, to conduct this training level on vector-borne diseases. And it's hoped that this type of of knowledge and education in the region will help um, to better respond to and prevent outbreaks of vector-borne diseases like Zika virus and dengue fever. Um, So thank you, Dr. Stone, for joining us. Are you there? I'm here, yes. Good to talk with you. <laughs> Thanks so much. And it's um, poor Grenada. Well, they got lucky. Uh, they missed Hurricane Matthew just by the skirt of the of their tails. It was meant to um, hit the island, which is, I don't know if anybody out there has ever visited Grenada, but it's very small, 22 miles long and about 10 miles wide. And um, they'd been hit really hard by Ivan years ago. And so very lucky to be able to pass Hurricane Matthew. Um, so we'll kind of jump right into it. Um, would you like to tell us um, the current programs that you're involved with at SGU? I mean, from the teaching side and the research projects, um, a little bit more about those. Sure. Um, first of all, um, the department that I'm in is the department that is responsible for doing uh, most of the infectious disease teaching. Uh, so our faculty in this department teach the microbiology, bacteriology, uh, immunology, parasitology, virology courses, and public health and epidemiology as well. And so my part is primarily in teaching in the immunology course, and that's where we talk about and how vaccines protect animals and humans and the immune responses that we expect when animals are either vaccinated or exposed to certain kinds of pathogens. 
And then in terms, another big thing that we do is research. And again, my research is primarily on infectious diseases. And right now that's focusing on primarily bats as a potential reservoir for human viruses such as Ebola, Marburg, uh, possibly other viruses as well. Uh, We did detect both uh, chikungunya and Zika now and um, dengue viruses in bats. We don't think these viruses cause the bats any problem, but it's possible that the bats can maintain these viruses between human epidemics. Clearly, one... The virus is in the human population and mosquitoes are biting those humans. We don't really need an animal reservoir, but we're curious about what happens in between human epidemics. Where do these viruses reside where they could pop up again if non-immune humans enter the picture? And one thing we see here in Grenada is an influx of tourists and students uh, that Obviously, when they first come here, they're not immune to any of these viruses, and none of these viruses currently have any vaccines for protection. So that's one of the things that we're working on that involves veterinary medicine and human health. That's super interesting. I haven't, um, you know, well, I, I, we know that certain populations will hold a, a reservoir, but I did not know that about bats. Um Bats are, I mean, we always talked about it with rabies um, and things like that, but that's, that's really interesting. Um, do you have current students working right now, like the public health students or the combo veterinary students on those specific projects, or is it more faculty-centered uh, right now? No, we almost all the research projects that we do here do involve students. And, in fact, we, we try to encourage students to become involved in these research projects for a couple of reasons. One, we, uh, we think it's good for DVM students to appreciate the role that research plays in veterinary medicine as a profession. And, mm-hmm. two, uh, we're actually required to introduce DVM students to research. So we absolutely encourage students to become involved in all of our research projects if possible. And... Students did help with the BAT project and are continuing to do so. Uh, We had, I think, four students that went out with us to help actually trap the bats, which isn't an easy thing to do. Uh, And Uh -uh. in fact, those of us faculty members who first started this project, we were totally ignorant about how to work with bats. We knew a lot about the viruses and things that bats could possibly carry, but we really did not know about trapping bats or handling them once they were caught. So we identified some collaborators at uh, the University of Washington in Seattle whose expertise is just that, bat behavior, bat trapping, uh, handling bats. They aren't particularly interested in viruses in bats, but they're very, very interested in bats and their behavior. And they had trapped bats in Costa Rica and Venezuela and other places near to us, and in fact, one of those researchers was originally from Venezuela, so we thought, oh, those are the perfect people to bring to the island to help us learn how to do this, and and now we pretty much know how to do that, but for three weeks, they came down here and really educated us on bats and uh, how to work with them, and it was very interesting. We in Grenada have both insectivorous bats, which is what you see in the U.S., but we also have fruit bats and nectar-drinking uh, bats. 
So we have a, a greater variety of at least different kinds of bats in terms of their eating behavior. Uh, and they're very interesting critters, I have to say. I didn't know much about them myself. <laughs> but uh-uh. <laughs> uh, increasingly, they're recognized as uh, carrying viruses like they are the main reservoir for Ebola, for example, and wow. for Marburg. And so once that Ebola outbreak occurred in West Africa, there's been increasing interest in bats and other viruses that infect humans that they may also harbor. Now, whether they play an important role epidemiologically or not, we don't know. They certainly do for Ebola. We do know that. And certainly for rabies as well. But as far as we know, our bats here in Grenada are not a reservoir for rabies. We have rabies here in the mongoose. Right. Um, I remember that. Is, you know, another concern uh, altogether. Huh, that's super fascinating. Um, so when you're going, when you go about trapping the bats, is that around their food sources? And I mean, how how are they trapped with like nets or? Um, it depends on the location and the kind of bat that we're trying to trap. There uh, is at least one cave here on the island, and so when they're roosting during the day, we can go and trap them in in a cave. We can mm-hmm. so. You know, we could go in the uh, or late afternoon to trap them before they leave the cave. And those we would be just trapping in handheld nets. But if we want to collect the insectivorous uh, bats primarily, we want to catch them in mist nets, which is nets that can catch tiny birds or tiny bats. And these insectivorous bats tend to be very, very small. You know, they're, uh, you know, just a few right. inches long. And so we go out at dusk and we put up these mist nets and trap them as they leave their roosting areas, like in people's house, under, underneath the eaves of houses, etc. But if we want to trap fruit bats, we actually go to the orchards and uh, again at dusk and trap mm-hmm. them as they're starting to leave where they're roosting in trees, etc., to go and eat the fruit. And some here in Grenada, bats are usually looked upon as pests because they can make things very dirty in houses and verandas and they eat the fruit. But they're all they're really very necessary. They help pollinate, they help disperse seeds. So we really try to also do community education on uh, the fact that bats are a very important part of the ecosystem wherever they happen to be. So it really right. depends on what kind of bat we're looking for and what their habits are and then how we would try to uh, trap them. Well, trap them and then study them too. I mean, the, the solution would not be just to wipe out the, you know, the the fact that they can harbor all these diseases, but they are a very important part, like you mentioned, of the ecosystem. So that's Absolutely. that's really, yeah. I mean, that's but that's I mean, that's fascinating too that you're able to call on as as a major university different resources for um, people who specialize in because there are, I mean there's so many spe- specialties out there. It's not just. Um, uh-huh. You know, I mean, studying the behavior, the behavior side of things and that group of people that are interested Uh um, that can lend their knowledge. So that's that's really uh, that's a great partnership, um, which I think St. George's has been incredible with. I mean, we saw I saw that as as a student. I mean, it wasn't just the veterinary school. It's the medical school school. It's the public health department and it's arts and sciences. And just in one one on one island and one campus, you have a huge collaboration of, of fields and then international and cultural experiences. But 
Um, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about, about One Health. Um, we are due for a quick little break, and we'll be back in two minutes to discuss a little more about One Health and what it means and St. George's University. And we're speaking with Dr. Diana Stone. We'll be right back after this break. Thanks. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Do you feel alone trying to conquer life's challenges? Do you feel that there's sometimes nowhere to turn and nobody really understands? Remember, you are not alone. Every week, host April Joy Ford, who has faced adversity as a constant in her life, helps you rise above life's challenges with your own blueprint meant to discover the powerful you. April's challenges have included childhood sexual abuse, becoming a widow and single parent at 32, and other such curveballs. She'll help you get empowered holistically every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. It's time to access your magic. Tune in each week to Living in the Magic of Possibilities with your host, Glenice Hughes. Our topics cover finances, personal health, business, relationships, mediumship, and so much more. If you want to access all that is possible in your life, listen to Glenice and her expert guests who've turned the impossible into the possible. Living in the Magic of Possibilities is heard live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to The Compassionate Life. To reach Dr. Brittany King or her guest today, please call into our program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to brittanyking.swimbet at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. And we're back. Thanks for joining us again. I'm Dr. King, and I'm speaking with Dr. Stone of St. George's University, and we're talking about One Health, One Medicine. Um, so we just talked about uh, the current research projects Dr. Stone's working on, her vital role that she's playing within uh, public health research there on the island um, that will, you know, ideally translate to worldwide help. Um, we were talking about bats and reservoirs of, of vector-borne diseases. Um, I wanted to kind of jump a little more over to the One Health, One Medicine um, side. We initially, the two of us had partnered together. We did island-wide clinics, and this involved collaboration with the veterinary students, the public health students, and the School of Medicine. And what these One Health, One Medicine clinics would do is go to different parishes or places on the island and bring a World Health-type day uh, we we tried to do them at least once a semester. Now I have um, if, well heard that they're actually hosting for a year, which is fantastic. Um, the Dr. Stone used to be our faculty advisor. Currently, we have Dr. Sylvester, Dr. Torito, Dr. Lanza, um, Elizabeth Peach. She's a, a certified veterinary technician. And then Dr. Um, Inga and Patterson and Dr. Keith, they also kind of help sit in on 
on these clinics too. Um, but but with these clinics for our, our listeners too, it's become a, a really important um, educational piece for for the the island um, from the vet side to the human side uh, that. While, while the clinics occur on each Saturday, basically, uh, so you'd have the medical students doing things like HIV testing and eye exams and uh, breast exams, um, and they're getting, you know, they're getting practice as students. And then on the veterinary side, we'd be doing a lot with, you know, rabies vaccinations, um, treating especially those zoonotic diseases, uh, discussing those with the clients, um, doing wound care, deworming for roundworms and hookworms and things like that. And then the public health side was totally different. Um, Dr. Stone, what did, what did, I guess you mentioned that you were, um, your faculty advisor every like year and a half, um, for the One Health, One Medicine. Well, uh, what we have here in addition to the One Health, One Medicine clinics, I'm no longer the faculty advisor for those, but what we also initiated a few years ago was a One Health, One Medicine conference, uh, which occurred approximately every year and a half. And that is still going on, and it was fair, pretty much a regional conference, so most of the participants were from the Caribbean, um, and it was primarily a conference that showcased current research that's going on in the area that involves both human and animal health and ecosystems, things like that. And that still is an ongoing thing, and um, we still have a representative on that committee. Uh, So it has a different focus every year and a half, uh, but it's one of the major things that we do in addition to the community clinics that you initiated here. And, And... from my own point of view, I think those community clinics that you initiated really are the best example that we have of a truly One Health, One Medicine uh, approach to providing services and education. Uh, so it was really, and they have grown. Like you said, when you were here, we did those uh, clinics about twice a year, and now we do them four times a year. And more and more, I do see these clinics having an educational component. When I was still the faculty advisor, one of the students who was on the committee that oversees those clinics decided to start a small group for the children at these clinics because she noticed that there were lots of kids around. The kids love to come and look at the animals and they bring in their puppies and kittens. And sometimes <laughs> they're a little bit disruptive. <laughs> so yes. Do you remember the... Them up. <laughs> Do you remember the goats on a rope, that one clinic? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Yeah. And, uh, oh. and, you know, the, the little kids will bring the goats and the sheep and everything. And uh, she finally uh, decided to do an educational thing for children with a coloring book and helping them understand how to take care of their pets. And she even took that idea into the schools here. And so, you know... D- now these students who uh, are involved in these clinics uh, are trying to develop some educational programs for the schools on uh, how to take care of a puppy, how to take care of a kitten, things like that, or sheep or goats. And we do much more of the food, you know, the sheep and goats, the small ruminants at these clinics than we used to do. It used to be pretty much dogs and a few cats. Mm-hmm. And then I remember at one clinic we actually, uh, one of the cats that a person brought in 
got loose and ran away. And so from that point on, we now have a special tent for cats so they can't get loose. Oh, no. And uh, the students have really, you know, I'm so impressed with our students because they really, they want to do these clinics. In fact, um, we ask for volunteers and we get many more volunteers than we actually need. But it's really good experience not only for the community but for our students. They right. uh, get a good sense of what it's like to um, provide service in a culture that maybe isn't exactly like the culture they come from. And I think that's good for any veterinarian to learn uh, because I'm sure even where you practice, Brittany, you're seeing clients that have a different view of what the world is like and what animals are like and the role they play in their lives. And I think it's real important for veterinary students to try to um, identify with their clients in terms of what that animal means to them. Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, I think the, those are great points there as far as, I mean, I always said Grenada was uh, the most like positive, incredible, life-turning, changing opportunity, like turning point in my life for sure. Um, and that included I mean, everything from just the experience of veterinary school to um, your eyes being open to a third, living in a third world country. And then, you know, seeing different from a student standpoint in those clinics, you're learning, I mean, and that skill translates for the rest of your career, how to um, think outside the box. So, I mean, it, yeah. exactly addressing all those things, you know, okay, so I have this pet here and somebody actually brought a pet in that has a, a pretty big wound or, and I have this amount of supplies. What am I going to do with this? How am I going to treat this? And it gives you that um, on hand, like in the field clinical type knowledge to come up with. And you don't always have your gold standard plan A options. And then I mean, the just the clinical skill there practice is really great for the students. But I love that the educational side is really taken off, um, starting with that one student and the children. I, I spoke last week with uh, Nicole Forsyth, the CEO of Red Rover, and her um, program that she launched, and that was uh, with Red Rover Read, where she actually launched these ebooks and they teach children empathy and they're implementing that in all these schools. And it's a, an on hands uh, program that they, they take to the teachers and the teachers go through and it. And it actually um, shows the, you know, the, the child who may have had a totally different experience with an animal growing up that may not have ever even been considered a pet, or maybe they grew up in a household where there were fighting dogs or fighting cocks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and it teaches them, and they come to that conclusion on their own too, just with being, you know, shown a visual and and, and of what a what a proper pet care owner would do. Or um, so that's that's great. That's actually really 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 cool that that student took that. And I think that's that's another good point though about the clinics is it just is the environment that's perfect for people to take their curiosities and kind of build and expand upon it. I was so happy when leaving and I wondered what would happen to the clinics. I was really passionate about them being a student there and, and the fact that they, well, that St. George's embraced it um, and, you know, found it valuable. And then it's a, a board now and it's even more organized than I had tried to. Right. It is. It I, I know when you left, it was like, Oh no, what do we do now? Because What's you had that? such organizational skills and motivation skills, all of a sudden that was gone. And so we did institute more structure to the organization. And students actually have to now apply 
to be on the Veterinary Public Health Committee, and it's three students. Um, maybe they have more now, but when I started that component of it, we actually interviewed them, asked them why they wanted to be on that committee, what, and the main part of that committee is to oversee those clinics that you started, those community clinics. And uh, so we, we have an opportunity to select really good, highly motivated students uh, to oversee that program. And I've been very, very impressed with them. But when you left, we were like, oh, my gosh, what do we do now? <laughs> No, so, I've been, uh, it, I'm it impressed. Some, some thought to bring it back together again. Oh, but it's really, I mean, it's incredible, though, now with, with where it is. Um, I'm super impressed and couldn't be happier that it continued. I mean, I think it, it is our wave of the future, approaching diseases um, and health for uh, across the board um, with a multimodal approach, not just we have animal diseases and we have human diseases um it used to be so segregated in the past but um so that's no that's pretty that's really interesting and for our listeners out there too uh we do Grenada is actually initiating on um an online course in honor of world health one uh one health day and that's a one health one medicine course and it's called a sustainable approach and it's online um it runs november 3rd to december 4th i encourage everybody to go to st george's university's homepage and just explore around the amazing things that st george's is doing and you find that at sgu.edu um but yeah i think that i mean it is just it it's awesome to see people embrace um you know what your role is all of us have a role in public health um, from a you know a veterinary standpoint and then the medical standpoint too and um, I think the teaching that early on and that you know the veterinary school and medical school those early years and then those students will embrace that as we become practitioners later so yes that, well, that certainly is something we hope uh, gets um, translated when these students leave here and go to places where it maybe isn't as easy to uh, you know, coordinate with medical people, et cetera. I remember when I was at Washington State University as a faculty member, I would occasionally get calls from MDs, and they would be asking me, you know, can a person get this kind of disease from this animal? And uh, it was surprising to me in some ways, at least back then, how little the medical profession knew about the veterinary profession. <laughs> and so I'm hoping that that also is changing. And I, and I think it is. I, I definitely I, do. Yeah, I, th- I think it is somewhat. I still get questions, though, that and they'll, they'll say, well, my medical doctor asked me to ask you. <laughs> and they'll be and bringing right, their, right, which is fine, know, their dog which is in fine. for something. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's good for veterinarians to be a resource for mm-hmm. for your clients and also for the, for the uh, physicians who may be having questions. So I always really encourage you know MDs to ask us uh, what we can do to provide them with the information they might need. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we'd had I've I've had a couple handful of cases over the six years of practice where um, you know some 
unfortunately, you know, immunocompromised family member, maybe they're in the hospital, but we've had a leptospirosis one. We've had, um, you know, a couple others there where then we're doing some testings on the dogs later too. And it's, um, it's pretty interesting. So, well, we're actually due for another, a quick, one quick break, another quick break, and then we'll be back um, here to continue to talk about One Health and St. George's University. Thanks for listening and we'll be right back. us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. How are you doing in your life? Do you control your life or does it control you? In our hectic, overconnected world, do you spend too much time feeling tired and wired? Tune in to Master Your Life with hosts Leah Mattinson and Dr. Howard Rankin for inspiration, insight, and intelligence on how to gain control of yourself and your life. Along with some inspirational and knowledgeable guests, Leah and Howard will give you the tools needed to help you on your journey. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Women in sport has come a long way in a reasonably short time. In the 1950s, most women's sport was casual, recreational competition, followed by snacks or a light lunch. Today, women's sport is competitive, powerful, and in the mainstream. Whether it's collegiate, Olympics, or professional leagues, tune in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up, where you'll discover the path that women's sport has taken over the past 50 years and more. Featuring your host, Carol A. Oglesby. Listen Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America. Empowerment. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to The Compassionate Life. To reach Dr. Brittany King or her guest today, please call into our program at 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to brittanyking.swimbet at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Thanks, we're back. I'm Dr. King, and we're speaking with Dr. Stone of St. George's University, talking about One Health and the role um, St. George's is playing in One Health, One Medicine. Um, so we're, we're finishing up. We were talking about our One Health clinics and where they are now. Um, also for our listeners, their last one was on September 3rd in Grand Wall, and their upcoming one is going to be October 22nd at Telescope in St. Andrews. Um, for anybody happening to visit Grenada on October 22nd. Uh, okay. But certainly go and uh, you know, research around it, check it out, see what these students are doing. Um, I wanted to talk a little more about, so the, the theme of the show is, is the compassionate life. And I really, I felt that, you know, being a a faculty member at, at St. George's and I mean, just being a student, you know, really kind of opened your eyes to, if if you'd come from America or maybe a, a different cultural experience, you know, what, how St. George's kind of just builds compassion and empathy in you. I mean, what, what would you say the role Dr. Stone is um, of, you know, a student? How is, how is a compassionate life kind of built within the student body? Well, uh, we do have a course here on ethics. So I think that is certainly a place where that uh, comes in. And uh, we also have the veterinary oath, 
which the students hear when they first come here. You know, we have the white coat ceremony uh, mm-hmm. where uh, the term one students uh, are uh, provided with a ceremony kind of initiating them into the veterinary profession as students, and they hear that veterinary oath, which really also speaks to compassion and ethics. Uh, So certainly it comes up there. I think the um, community clinics also help to instill um, a view of animals and their importance to people and how we need to have compassion not just for people but also for animals. And uh, we also have, for any research that we do, as in any university in the U.S., we have an, uh, a committee that oversees our proposals on the use of animals in research and in teaching. So we have to fill out forms and justify why we're using animals in teaching or research and how they will be used to make sure that everything is uh designed to be very, very humane and that we're not doing things that won't result in good outcomes. So it's called the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. Every university in the U.S. has such a committee and we have one here. And it really uh, looks very carefully at whatever we propose to do either in teaching or in research that involves any kind of live animal. Uh, and I know just in the instruction of veterinary students since I've been involved as a faculty member has changed dramatically in terms of the use of animals in teaching. For example, we try to minimize the use of animals in teaching. And we now do, we have a, a fully operational simulation lab here at St. George's University, both for human medicine and veterinary medicine. So we have simulated models where students can learn to uh, take a blood sample uh, from a vein of a dog, but it's not a real dog, it's a a model. And they're very realistic, quite frankly. (laughs) And they also learn how to monitor uh, certain kinds of situations in animals, like um, something's going wrong with the heart. But again, it's all done under simulation conditions. But they can be very realistic, and I'm fully in support of using simulations as opposed to using live animals. I know when I was in training in vet school, we used a lot of live animals. We would do surgeries on animals, and we don't do, we don't do that anymore. The surgeries we do on animals here are all spay and neuter uh, for the animal. They would be going through spay and neuter anyway. And so we um, people uh, can get free spay and neuter here for their dogs or cats, uh, and the students do perform the surgeries, but under very close supervision of the clinician. Um, so uh, that, to me, is a very good service that we offer. So we offer a free service in that way, and we also offer opportunities for good training for our students. But we re- truly do try to minimize uh, the use of animals, uh, live animals anyway, in teaching, except when we feel like it's part of what would be normal veterinary care and it's, it's a service to the community as well. Right. And no, I that's, think um, most of the courses that people teach, they also comment on, you know, what's ethical uh, approaches to the practice of veterinary medicine. 
Right. No, I mean, I think that's that's super um, important as, I mean, technology advances. Um, at my last veterinary CE, uh, the dean of Texas A&M had come to speak about their groundbreaking research building that's um, it's coming up where they're, they're opening day, but showing us the model. I mean, it honestly looked like something from a movie where you have a 3D or or by no more than that um, image that pops up and it shows you your your body with the skin and then and it's it's a holograph and then with just the uh-huh. vascular supply or then the neuro supply and then the muscles and you're learning and you're dissecting um, and then they were speaking about the use of the sim labs too when I um, the last time I had visited Grenada I got to tour the like just first part of the sim lab um but i know it's advanced uh-huh. so much more but it it's it's awesome because it would show you you know i mean if you give atropine what's that going to do to the heart or any and exactly. students can ex- experiment and learn you know and they'll do a i don't know if they're doing that or do they do like case presentations so then a student will get to choose you know what to give and and how the body's then going to respond is, is that what happens in those classes, too? Uh, it kind of depends. I mean, um, uh, I think they do do some of that in the sim lab, in, the, in the, those that are focused more on cardiology or medicine. They also mm-hmm. do sim labs for palpation, like a simulated uterus of a cow, for example. So oh. you would uh, palpate this uterus and try to determine if there's Pregnant. a fetus in there, et cetera. But yeah. it's all simulated. It's not on a real cow. And again, I know when I was in veterinary school, we were palpating real cows at dairies or uh-huh. at slaughter facilities before they went to slaughter. So, um, And I think students can learn a lot in simulation and stop and ask questions, things that maybe you couldn't do under uh, a live animal situation. But some of them, um, they also do what are... Um, called, um, well, we do kind of mock exams with the students where they do a physical exam on a simulated animal. Uh-huh. They may have, um, you know, and, and it may be presented to them as a case and what would they do uh, for this particular case. So we do cases more when we're, uh, when we're examining the student's and they may have had a similar case as a demonstration or in a simulation lab. I'm not sure they get to actually choose a case to experience in terms of simulation. Hmm. I don't think we've quite gotten to that point yet where we have that many um, uh, mannequins that we can use, et cetera. Right. No, and I'm sure it's coming. That's, I mean, that's fascinating. What, um, how, how about anatomy? Um, I still, I mean, are most of, are, are we still using, you know, typically live, well, the dead models, but for, you know, your anatomical dissection course, or are they use kind of substituting that as well? Uh, I, I wish they were substituting it. I think uh, several veterinary schools in the U.S. are starting to do that. Uh-huh. Uh, it, from, from my point of view, it makes total sense to stop using cadavers in the training yeah. of anatomy for veterinary students. I don't think we really need to do that anymore. It's very, very expensive. And mm-hmm. being here on this island, we have to import all these cadavers. Uh, so right. for us, it's very expensive. But uh, And I have uh, suggested to the dean, et cetera, that maybe we, even though it's very expensive initially, go into more uh, simulation models for anatomy. 
uh, it would be very expensive initially, but then you can reuse these models over and over again, uh, which you can't really do with the cadavers. No. So for me, I think it makes a lot of sense in terms of reducing animals that we use in teaching. And also, I think it actually, in the end, gives a better instruction for the students. I really do. Yeah, this is definitely, um, I mean, it's worth, It's probably the, the future and where it's going, but I was just curious. I so. Think so. Yeah, but that's really fascinating, though, that, I mean, we do, as a, you know, as, as a student of St. George's, we had challenges as far as um, not quite having the same access to a lot of the things students would have in the States, um, you know, and that being, uh, getting all of those, all of that experience, including the anatomical dissections with the cadavers and, um, and really being able to um, St. George, I think St. George has done an incredible job here uh, ever since I left as a student. Every time I, I get an email or hear of, a, of an update, it just, it really blows my mind how fast paced things are, are advancing in a, in a positive way. So, um, yeah, it's really, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do, I do think that our instruction here is improving. Uh, we do have a, uh, fully operational small animal clinic, which just became accredited with AHA. So, Oh, um, congratulations. That a, a, yeah, that was really good for us. So we're really yeah. happy with that. And it, you know, um, it shows that we can establish a good small animal clinic here and use it to service, uh, to provide services to the community and also to help train our students. So that is another, and I think when you come and visit here uh, in about a month, I think you'll uh, see a lot of changes. Uh, when was the last time that you were here? Um, it was for a white coat ceremony when I hosted or emceed that. Gosh, that was like 2013, I believe. So yeah, three years or so. <laughs> it's okay. been way too long. Okay, good. Way too long. Yeah, because I'd come and then we were working on um, that that research paper and trying to get that published too. Um, right, yeah, I think it was, right. I think it was 13, right, right after, like a year later than okay. um, swim. So. Well, we'll be very glad to have you come and visit us again. So that would oh, be really I- fun. I can't wait. I think I hope somebody like holds me hostage there. <laughs> I love Grenada. <laughs> um, well, we're due for one last final break, and then we'll come back. Um, okay. We are we're speaking with Dr. Diana Stone from St. George's University, and I'm Dr. King, and this is the Compassionate Life. Thanks for listening, and we'll be right back after this quick break. <laughs> Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. When you see someone, are you seeing the person or the perception? We see labels such as fat, thin, black, white, rich, poor, but we don't always see the true identity. Listen for New Dimensions with Reverend Nicholas Barrett. On this program, we'll embrace the breaking down of societal paradigms, our norms, and acceptance of our false selves. You can find your identity the way that God intended. Forget all the labels that you think you see. Tune in every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Bye. 
inspired, encouraged, and connected on our lively, award-winning Healthy Living Power Hour. Star Style Be the Star You Are with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to The Compassionate Life. To reach Dr. Brittany King or her guest today, please call into our program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to brittanyking.swimbet at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. And we're back. Thanks for joining us for our last segment. I'm talking about One Health and One Health, One Medicine and St. George's role in that, speaking with Dr. Stone. And I just wanted to read a a mission statement from the One Health Initiative. Um, You can find that online at onehealthinitiative.com. But um, for our our readers or listeners out there, um, the mission of One Health is recognizing that human health, including mental health via the human-animal bond phenomenon, animal health and ecosystem health are inextricably linked. One Health seeks to promote, improve, and defend the health and well-being of all species by enhancing cooperation and collaboration between physicians, veterinarians, other scientific health and environmental professionals, and by promoting strengths in leadership and management to achieve these goals. Their vision is uh, One Health is dedicated to improving the lives of all species, human and animal, through the integration of human medicine, veterinary medicine, and environmental science. And this this comes from in you know joint educational efforts between the human field, the medical field, the veterinary side, um, and public health and the environment. So, I mean, I, th- I think St. George's really has and and continues to have and show you know an incredible opportunity and demonstration of of one health right there on the island. I mean, we have. Uh, very, I, I don't think there are very many schools that have a medical school, a veterinary school, and a public health school where you're all right there. And it's a, it's a small student body, and you get to know the your colleagues and people in different schools very well, and you start talking and talking medicine and veterinary medicine, and it's just a perfect environment breeding ground for cultural experience and that um, kind of knowledge exchange. And I really, honestly, really proud to have gone to St. George's University. It was um, honestly, you know, a life-changing moment for me. Um, And, but I wanted to ask you, Dr. Stone, um, what, you know, what skill sets do you think students learn at St. George's kind of all levels, full circle of, you know, how do, how do they, you know, take their education, embrace it. And th- and this could be, I mean, how would you define their, you know, their cultural experience um, and then do good with it thereafter? Because every time I kind of log on and look at what alumni are doing, it's, it's really impressive um, what, you know, different students from all segments of the school and sectors have done with their education from St. George's and then taken it back home and then just 
um, you know, continued their their spread. But what what would you say your view of that is? Well, I think um, for veterinary students, and I'll focus in on the veterinary students uh, initially, they definitely have ample opportunity here uh, in Grenada to develop a, a, a good sense of cultural differences and how that impacts the practice of veterinary medicine and the approach. And I think that's something that's very valuable. Not all of our students take advantage of that. But the ones who do, I think, really gain from it. Uh, we do have students who come here that pretty much just focus on their studies and don't really see much of the island. And maybe they become very good diagnosticians. But I think the ones that really gain from the experience that we can offer here is that uh, cultural experience. And the other thing that they can gain here if they take advantage of it is the fact that you mentioned that we have both a medical school, a veterinary school, and a Department of Public Health embedded within the medical school. And so they have all that opportunity to see how other medical professionals may be assessing the same problem. Um, And I think we will recognize that we really embraced One Health, One Medicine when we actually start training our medical and veterinary students together. <laughs> right now, we have right. the veterinary school and the veterinary students, you know, take their courses in that school and the medical students take their courses. But, for example, my discipline in immunology, I could teach it to medical students and veterinary students together. And I think that's right. one thing they, the public health department does do is they have both veterinary and medical students and non-medical students uh, in their program, in their Master's of Public Health program, and that's where all these students with these different uh, career goals in mind are trained together. Uh, I know when I did my Master's in Public Health, I trained with, uh, I wasn't a vet yet at that time, but I quickly realized that I was uh, going through that program with physicians, nurses, social workers. Uh, veterinarians, dentists, all of us were working, uh, you know, getting our public health training in that context, and we quickly saw that all the other medical professionals were there, and we were all looking at a particular problem, and we all had contributions to make to the solution of that particular problem. So I think we'll really embrace One Health, One Medicine when we actually start training our medical and veterinary students together, not maybe entirely, but at least a large part could be uh, done together. I think, no, that's an, a, an excellent opportunity. Really, that, that should happen. And um, I think that, you know, especially for the those, honestly, I mean, well, let's take anatomy and physiology even. I mean, maybe anatomy slightly different, uh-huh. but your physiology, so many of uh-huh. the courses, I mean, the body works the same way, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, but, but, but be really embracing like teaching medicine is you know maybe some of those some of those like first you know first year courses as together they, um, yeah. they could be a, together and then I mean incredible idea there are things that are very different you know when you start talking about a cow and the rumen it's yeah. the digestion, <laughs> it's totally different so you have to have a different course a little, a little bit different yeah. the profession that we do have here in Grenada which I think is pretty unique is that we now have a 
um, a person who specializes in fish and aquatic animal medicine. And again, Grenada is such a good location for that since we're surrounded by water. And yeah. um, so that's just, you know, just another thing that the veterinary profession is is expanding into more and more is aquatic animal medicine and opening up opportunities for veterinarians. And again, there are some fish that are pets, you know, so people have to know how to properly take care of their pet fish. And, of course, Thank fish are a, are a big concern in terms of the ecosystem. Right. Well, and then we talk about the turtle research that Grenada does. As a student there, you have the opportunity to help with conservation. And we have the massive, those leatherback turtles. Um, People Uh have probably seen this on Discovery Channel, but where you, um, there's a lot to do with um, poaching. And and so the students will get chances to go up to the northern part of the island and help with the, where the females are laying their, their eggs and, and, and protecting them from poachers and, and moving the nest as needed. And um, really just, you know, that environmental ecosystem help too. another incredible opportunity Grenada has. Uh, there, yeah, so. there definitely are really good opportunities here for students if they choose to take advantage of them, and and a lot of our students do. I think more veterinary students um, take advantage of what Grenada has to offer than students, let's say, in the medical school, and maybe it's because animals are so much a part of the overall environment, and people are definitely very interested in wildlife and uh, things like that, so... Uh, I'm I'm very proud of a lot of our veterinary students and the fact that they do take advantage of of what we have to offer here. That's awesome. No, and it's been. Um, I mean. You, well, I will say it. Um, I mean, I've had different professors from different, um, I actually had started veterinary school at a different location and, and Grenada was hands down. The professors helped make that experience. Um, students will, that will allow them to want to embrace it. You can have professors that don't care and you can have compassionate professors. And Grenada was an incredible opportunity um, from veterinary school standpoint to have compassionate professors that really cared about teaching um, and helping you achieve your goals and, and finding ways to whatever your curiosity was to embrace that. And I will always, always be grateful for that. Um, if you had one piece of, of inspirational advice, um, either education-wise or um, maybe just to visit St. George's, what, what would it be for our listeners? <laughs> just life advice. Well, I, would, I like to end on that. Yeah, it's hard to... It's hard to know exactly who your listeners are, you know, if uh, if there are people who are are interested in the veterinary profession, you know, there's definitely, I, I would recommend St. George's University as a place to acquire that. If your listeners are interested in ecosystems and what goes on in, a, in the Caribbean in terms of uh, wildlife, um, Grenada certainly has a lot to offer there, as do the other islands. Um, there's a lot to, to learn here. Um, I think one of the things that I learned is by being here in Grenada, I could look at the U.S. differently. I don't know if that makes sense, but when you're on a tiny island like this, you quickly recognize that whatever the U.S. does, it ha- can have a huge impact on a small island, whereas mm-hmm. what happens in Grenada probably has very little impact on the U.S. 
uh, unless we carry Zika to the U.S. or something. But, right. uh, but you really start to appreciate how what happens in other countries uh, policy-wise or, um, you know, import-export-wise can really impact this island. Uh, and so um, I, th- I think there's a lot um, that one can learn by even just visiting a small island like Grenada in terms of appreciating uh, what goes on globally and uh, how small islands like this really do depend on the larger world for their well-being in a lot of ways. And so Absolutely. we try to protect what we have here on this island. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, try to make an impact on uh, the resources that are here. Um, but it, it can oftentimes be a struggle as well. But it's very helpful, I think, to at least visit an island like Grenada for no other reason to get a better perspective on the U.S. In the U.S. I think that's so so true, so true. Um, Well, thank you so much, Dr. Stone, for taking the time to um, go through One Health, One Medicine with us this past hour. Um, I hope everyone does get a chance to visit Grenada sometime in their lifetime. Visit their website, www.sgu.edu, and celebrate One Health Day coming up on November 4th. Thank you so much, Dr. Stone. Thank you for being a part of the compassionate life please join dr Brittany king again next tuesday at 3 p.m pacific time and 6 p.m eastern time on the voice america empowerment channel this week how will you leave your compassionate mark on the world